from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him, and assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for that promise, for that one, your son, the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah who would usher in a kingdom and a salvation that is glorious. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, as we look at your word, to, to draw us close to you, that your spirit would continue to work in us, bring conviction where it needs to be brought, but also bring the grace that brings transformation and reformation in our lives. We who have seen the good news of the gospel have a king, and he is good. He continues to graciously interact and work with us as people. Help us to be heralds of that king, and that others would come to know the joy of salvation found in this one. We pray this in Jesus' name. So last week, as we were working through the book of Micah, we were in chapter four, and God was declaring that he was going to do this mighty work by bringing this glorious restoration, but we know the people will be dispersed. We know that they will become exiles in a foreign land, but God was not done. He was going to reverse the destruction and the dispersion of his people. In verse 7 of chapter 4, we read that, that the Lord God was going to reign over all of his people at that time in latter days then. What about now? How was he going to usher in this reign? Well, Micah is quoted in that passage from Matthew. He would come, born to a virgin in the city of Bethlehem. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to open your Bible to Micah chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through the end, too. As we continue here, and we read these words, Micah chapter 5. But you... O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too small to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who comes forth from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until that time when she who is in labor has given birth. 
Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. And now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our places, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrians when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people like the dew from the Lord like showers on the grass which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many people, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down your strongholds and I will cut off sorcerers from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortune and I'll cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you will and you shall bow down no more to the works of your hand. And I will root out the Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in, in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Church, God will bring about restoration. God will bring this glorious renewal to his people through his king, God will establish his king. Verse 2 of chapter 5 is the most well-known passage in all of Micah, and it is amazing. The reason it's so well-known is because it's connected with the Christmas story. And really, the reason it's so well-known is because every Christmas we quote it. Perhaps some of you, when you were, if you're my age, I feel like we were the last of that group of people who did these things where you donned big robes and you put on a Christmas pageant and perhaps you were given that passage to quote. This is amazing. And it's, it's amazing because it points to Christ, but it's amazing for other reasons as well. Micah prophesies of the impeding Assyrian invasion, but that's happening while he's alive. As Micah is prophesying that the Assyrians are going to take over, he doesn't have to look very far. They are literally right outside the city. So you'd say, well, you can make that conclusion pretty easily. But he also talks about the Babylonians and the Babylonians coming to conquer and some, some people think that that section about the Babylonians was maybe added later, right? Like uh, when, the, when the exiles return back to Jerusalem and they look at Micah's prophecy, they're like, let's also throw in the word Babylon because they're the ones who actually ended up conquering us. I don't agree with that, but 
Here's some of the reason I don't agree with that. The Bethlehem prophecy had to be written before the birth of Jesus because as, we, as I read there in Matthew, when the king Herod calls the chief priests and the scribes, they seem to very quickly know Bethlehem. That's the city, Bethlehem. It was a prophecy that was well known to them. A prophecy written by Micah 700 years before the birth of Jesus that the little town of Bethlehem This one that he says is so little not to be counted amongst the clans of Judah. What he's talking about is when the Israelites come into the the area and and they're divvying out where they should go. The city of Bethlehem is so small it's not even listed in the lists. 700 years before Christ, Micah says, the promise of David sitting on a throne Forever and ever is not forgotten. The embers of the lineage of David will not be snuffed out. And if you think about it, it's insane that he would bring up Bethlehem. Because besides David, no other heir from David's family is born in Bethlehem. Right? If you're the king, you live in Jerusalem. So likely your kids are born in Jerusalem. But I think... God is also pointing out not just that this king would come, but that Bethlehem, this small city, would be the place where great things would come. He had already done it with David, and he will do it again with a far greater David. The city of Bethlehem stands in contrast to the cities that that we read about that I probably butchered half of their names in chapter one of the book of Micah. Their cities had meaning. And in chapter one, we read that the opposite was going to come from those cities. But yet Bethlehem, the city of bread, would be the locale where the bread of life would enter into the world as a lowly child. Some people think the region was maybe called Ephrathah. Other people think Ephrathah was was an older name used for the city that we know as Bethlehem, but that word means bountiful. It means fruitful. And so this king coming from the city of bread would also be God's king who would usher in this bountiful fruitfulness for his people. And then we read here in verse two, a very interesting description that this one who would be ruler over Israel is coming forth is from old, from ancient days. How could one who is coming be of old, be of ancient days? Well, the the Hebrew word translated old is often found in other scriptures. And in particular, I want to point you to Psalm 90, where we read, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, That word before the mountains were formed or the world was ever ushered in. That's the same word used here. Speaking of this king who is from old. It doesn't just mean old. It means before. And then the Hebrew word translated ancient actually means forever. So when we say ancient, like we're not talking about when the pyramids, we're talking about forever in the past. 
This future king is of old, of ancient days. How is that possible? Well, John gives us some clarity. If you flip over to John's gospel, John chapter one, John says these words, in the beginning was the word. He's talking about the king there, the word. He's talking about Jesus, the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything that was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines into the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This king, this Messiah who was promised would come from Bethlehem, but yet he has always been and has always existed and he comes in the strength of the Lord And he will shepherd the people in that strength. And in that strength is different than the way we might come in the strength or the power of the president or the king. He comes in that strength because it's his. This is the king that God has promised. This is the king who God said will come. But there's also something pretty amazing here. Look here at verse three. What is this king going to do? Therefore, he shall give them up. Speaking of God, God the Father will give them up, the people, until that time when she who is in labor gives birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return, the people of Israel. The king will gather the rest of his brothers to Israel. Who are the brothers? feel like verse three should be included in the New Testament more. Why? Because according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother. Who are the brothers that this king's gonna go out and get? It's us, you, Gentiles, right? This king is going to get you. You are not part of the people of Israel. Again, John gives us some clarity. John, what is it? John chapter 10. Look at what Jesus says here. John chapter 10, starting verse 13. That is not the right passage. I apologize. Let's start in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep, other brothers, that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The brothers that that this king who's going to be born in Jerusalem is going to go out and get are us. 
You see this again also in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at what the gospel does here. Ephesians 2 verses 13 and 14. We read these words. But now in Christ Jesus, you, Gentiles, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself, in him, one new man. In the place of two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace, it might reconcile us both. Both of us needed to be reconciled. Both of us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. The gospel brings together all different kinds of people from all different places into one kingdom. God's. Praise God that the Lord has established this king who would be born in Bethlehem. It's hard, and I don't know how else to explain this. Like, you read this passage, and I'm speaking here from a little bit of experience. I have half of my family, my dad's side of the family, they are all Jewish people. And I want to say, how do you not see that Jesus is God? How do you not see that he is the the long-awaited promised Messiah? He's fulfilled these promises. And they want to say, well, Kurt, he's not sitting on the throne in Jerusalem right now. He's he's not ushered in all of this peace and, and all of this. And I want to say, how is it that they can't see this? So a little side note, but I thought this was helpful because you look at this passage. This is their Messiah. He's ours as well, but this is their Messiah. How do you see this? And, and here's, here's kind of how I explain this. I have a picture. Can we bring that, that picture up? Maybe not. All right, so let's try to do this without a picture. Have you ever gone? I know, I know you guys live in Michigan and, and, and it's very flat here. But imagine, if you will, a mountain range. I know that's hard for some of you. You're like an incline. No, a mountain range. From far away, from a certain perspective, a mountain range looks like one thing. And there's these different peaks, right? And if you remember as a little kid, if you drew a mountain range, you just, you know, you did all of these things. And the peaks are all in line. But that's not a mountain range. And if you, if you switch your perspective, you'd find out that one peak is here, but the other peak is literally miles away. And I think here's where the flaw happens, or here's where they don't see. They're looking at this perspective, where it looks together. All of these things need to happen at one time, at one place, in one instant. What they don't understand is that there's valleys between. He has come and he's done these things, but another time is coming when these things will happen. Praise God that he is already working now, but he still has work to do, and that will happen then. But part of the then is now. 
I know, that's confusing, right? But it isn't. He has come. He was born in Bethlehem. He's the long-awaited king. But part of the reign of that king is already being ushered into your life, Christian. And then it will be over all people, all nations. Every knee will bow. But now the reign of the king brings reformation into your life. Look at what Micah declares here in verse 10. In that day, the day that God's king reigns, God is going to work through that king, King Jesus, to cut off and to root out not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, but things from our life. We can be so quick to look at others and judge the world out there and say, man, reformation needs to happen out there. God needs to rule in their life and those people who are rebels against God, those people who are sinners, those people who defame the name of the Lord, those people, those people, those people. But if you look at verse 10 through verse 14, the word you, your horses, your chariots, your idols, you, 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 your, 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 this king, when he comes to reign, is coming to reign in here, in us. We have things that need to be reformed. We have things that need to be cut out from us. That day is today. If you're a follower of Christ. Because today we want to pursue the Lord. Today we want to obey his commands. Today the spirit of God is working in us, in his church, to usher in the full reign of that king in us. By grace, God is preparing a people for his pleasure, a pure and devoted people. And I want to take some time to examine some of these verses. And as we do, church, Humble yourself to the scalpel of the Spirit of God because perhaps there's things that need to be cut out of you. In Micah chapter 5, verse 10, we read, In that day, that was a future day for them, but that's today for us. In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots. Horses and chariots were were used as the overthrow of others. They were a way to have influence. And and sadly, it's horses and chariots that often is called Israel's original sin. Because instead of trusting in their sovereign God, who is truly the king of kings to rule and protect them, they were like every other nation and said, let's get horses, let's get chariots. The psalmist writes in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but I will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so I ask you, church, where do you put your trust? Who are you hoping? He continues on. God says, I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down your strongholds. Cities and strongholds were things for protection. They were things people trusted in. The walls will surely keep us safe. The battlements will surely drive away anything that might do us harm. But please let us not forget the prayers and the praise of the people as they marched around the city of Jericho without a weapon in their hand and the walls come down. 
Or if you read a little bit after Micah's life, a single angel strikes down the Assyrian army of 185,000 people in a moment. Can you imagine walking up with some sort of thing that you hope in? I'm gonna trust in numbers, right? If we could just have more people, we will get what we want, or I will trust in numbers, meaning the zeros in my bank account, which hopefully have a number in front of the zeros. Friends, your faith shouldn't be identical to the world's. Do we trust in the Lord or are we trusting in something else? And he goes on, verse 12, I will cut off sorcerers from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. These people were turning to sorcerers. They were turning to fortune tellers instead of trusting in the word of God that was already given to them. God said these things, and they said, well, I'm not sure if God's really faithful in these things, so let's see what really might happen. And it it gets worse. These fortune tellers were seeking the dead to find out about the future. You have the living God, and you are pursuing dead things to find an answer. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 8, verse 19 says, And when they say to you, inquire of medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? When you're anxious, when you're fearful of the future, when you're anxious and overwhelmed of present circumstances, where do you go to find peace? Verses 13 and 14, we read, I will cut off your carved images, your pillars from among you, and and you shall bow down no more to the works of your hand. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. Idolatry of any kind should not be any part of the people of God. It's interesting that after the exile, after they are taken off into Babylon, when they start to come back, you don't read about idolatry being a pressing matter amongst the Jewish people. Let me clarify. You don't see the idolatry of bowing down to false images. You don't see Asherah uh, poles being chopped down because they're being put up. But what you do find is the thing that I think John Calvin helps us to remember is that we don't need carved idols to bow down to because our heart is an idol factory. We make idols all the time. There's still idolatry in Jerusalem when the exiles come back. It's just not carved out of stone anymore. It's still in here. God's king is coming to reform us. God's king is is coming to change us. What is it in your life that, that you need to be cut out? Christian, you are called to a life of reformation. 
And, and, and God has promised us his spirit to do those things in you. And I pray that you would do it because you, you see this, this warning, this loving warning given by God in verse 15. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. And you might think, well, God won't do that. That's an Old Testament thing. Flip over to Romans Chapter one, verse 18. This is in the New Testament. I want to remind you, friends. This is from Paul, who preaches grace everywhere, but also is obedient to the God who is sovereign over all things. And in verse 18, Paul writes these words, inspired by the spirit of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How much worse for those of us who know the truth fully and continue to suppress it or diminish it so that we can justify sin. We can justify doubt. In that day, God will bring about the reformation of his people and that day is today. He is reforming us. Yes. Again, go back to the mountain range. There is that day when we will be completely sanctified, not even that, glorified. But right now, he is working in our lives bit by bit by bit by bit to reform us. Because he reigns. If you don't want to be counted as the nations that did not obey and so remain under the wrath and the righteous judgment of God, there is a solution. And the solution is Christ. Have you ever stopped and really thought about the gospel? The gospel is God saving us from God. Have you ever thought about it that way? God is, is holy and, and we rebel and, and, and we want to run off just like the Israelites did. It's so easy to look back and be like, oh, you stupid Israelites. We are just as dumb. I just heard in the Sunday school class today, we're dumber today than we were then. See, you come to my class, I'll point you out too. <laughs> right? Like, we are dumber. No, he didn't say I was dumber. Just want to point that out. Uh, but like, I don't know, I am pretty dumb. Right? Like, we, we rebel, we run, and, and God says, I want to reign, I want to usher in goodness, I want to do these things, but you don't want it. And the wrath of God, because he is holy and righteous, is upon us. And so God comes in the flesh. It's almost like Micah talks about this, born in, a, in, in the little city of Bethlehem, that this king would reign and he would usher in righteousness for his people so that they would be saved. I'm a holy, 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 holy God. If you don't know Christ, you still need to be saved from God. And the way you are saved from God is you lean into him. You run to him. And through Christ, through his perfect life in your place, unperfect life, through his death, the death you deserve, by his glorious resurrection, he is victorious over sin and all of its consequence. When you put your hope in him, you find salvation. 
Instead of the wrath of God, you find the grace and the love and the mercy of God. And you are promised the gift of the spirit of God that is working to reform you. Churches, as we experience the sanctifying power of the spirit, as we are being reformed from the inside out, you're changed. Your desires are changed. Your pursuits are changed. You, you grow in purity. You, you grow in devotion to this savior, to this king. But don't be surprised that you find yourself at odds in the fallen world. It seems the more I try to be like Christ, the more the world does not like me. It seems that the more that I am, am, am set as, as, as sanctified, as, 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 as being set apart, I find that I struggle and conflict with the world. We, we battle the things they want to praise. I'm like, oh, that turns my stomach. But there's hope here in Micah chapter 5. Not to fear, church. Do not fear the world. In fact, you are a blessing to it. Do not fear, church. You are a blessing. We don't have to fear. Why? We have this promise that this day is coming when we will be raised up above all of our enemies. Jesus, the promised deliverer, will deliver the people of God. We see in verse nine that this king reigns and when he reigns, he will raise us up. He will take away all of our enemies. He will cut them off from us and they will no longer be able to harm us. If God is for us, who could be against us? That's such a simple, simple verse. But its simplicity doesn't make it any less true. What's the worst the world could do to you? Kill you? That's nothing. You're going to die anyway. If he is for us, who can be against us? Yeah, they could say things against us, but the reality is we serve the omnipotent, sovereign God who holds the entire known universe and things we don't even know. Guess who created those things? The same God who created you and knit you together and, and has put you in this place. And when you say, God, why did you put us here? It's not a surprise and shock to him that you are facing difficulties and challenges and the world is, is pushing in against you. Don't be afraid. You're like a lion amongst the beasts of the forest. Have you ever watched a documentary on the Serengeti? If you have, there's always going to be some point where the British narrator says, and look at the lions. Have you ever noticed how many lions there are against the giant herd? They're outnumbered. But the lions don't go, well, it's hopeless. Right? They know who they are. They know that, that, that they have a power. They have a strength, even amidst the herds. And they go and they live with boldness amongst those herds. You are to be a blessing. So don't just fear, but you are to be a blessing today. 
Amidst the nations, we the redeemed, we the church should be, according to verse seven, do and reign. The prophet Jeremiah would write to the exiles who were in Babylon, who were carried off into captivity. He says, multiply, increase. And then in Jeremiah 29, 7, he says, Seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Church, we are called to live lives that are like sweet dew from the Lord and like refreshing rain. And and rain, when it hits the land, produces bountiful life to the lost world around us. I have a pastor friend of mine who is uh, at a church, at a free church down in uh, Phoenix. And when I met him, there was a drought going on in in the, the Southwest. And there was many years where there was so little rainfall, but it was funny because my my friend Mike uh, had this video of his two kids when the rains finally came. And they are his daughters spinning around in circles, you know, looking up to the sky. His son is laying in the drain along the side of the road, splashing because there's water. It was sweet. It was almost like I'm like, so I, you know, I text them like, have your kids never seen water before? What is wrong with them? But it was something that was so sweet and such a celebration. And that God is saying to us, those who are under the reign of this king, brother, sister, you are here in this world as God's dispersed people among the nations, exiles right now. We have a future kingdom that's that's already ours, but we are we're not there yet. You are here to be a blessing. People of the world. You, Christian, are due and reign. You, Christian, are be a blessing to the people, even here in Midland. Wherever you're found, how can you bless the people around you because you know the king that was born in Bethlehem and he reigns in your life? How is God placing you right where you are to bless those people around you? The king has been born. His reign is already being established in the lives of his people. He is already working to reform us, to to sanctify us. And he says, don't be afraid. Be a blessing to your enemies, to those around you, that they may know the joy of this king and his salvation. Restoration is found under the reign of King Jesus. And we want all to know the glory of of that salvation. Lord God, help us. Help us to understand that we are here for a reason. 
We are here to be heralds of the good news of the gospel. We are here to be a, a sweet blessing, a, a, a little foretaste of, of the fullness of that blessing that is to be known at that time when the fullness of the kingdom of God will be ushered in over all of the world. When everybody will see Jesus high and lifted up above every name and they will see his power as being so supreme. They would see his goodness and they would, they would bow. I pray, Lord, that right now you would help us to be faithful in this call so that people would bow their knee today to this king, your king. That people today would see the goodness of his reign as it ushers in grace that wipes away sin, that it ushers away fear about the future because we know there is a far greater future than even we can fathom. Lord God, may the reign of King Jesus continue to grow in the hearts and minds of your church here and that we would carry out as heralds, as citizens of that kingdom to the lost so the reign of King Jesus would grow in that person's life, in that heart, in that life, in that family, in, in that workplace, in that city, in that nation. We know that you are capable of doing it. And so we say, Lord, do a mighty thing for your glory and your praise. Forever and ever we pray this thing in King Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we continue to worship today?
you guys away, the south side, which I think is this side, you guys, uh, we would love for you to help us stack some chairs in piles of 10. That would be helpful to, to us. Let me send you out with this, this charge here. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The king has come, and as a Christian, you already are part of that kingdom, and he is working his reign in your life so that you could actually give to him worship that is acceptable with reverence and awe. But let us also be a sweet dew and a refreshing rain upon those who do not yet know the king or the good news of the kingdom. So go. Bless and be blessed. Have a great week, church.